Welcome to the clinical podcast series brought to you by the American Academy of Optometry Foundation. The topic for today's episode is ocular syphilis. I'd like to thank our host, Dr. Mila Bruchik, our topical expert, Dr. Greg Wolf, and our topical editor, Dr. Katherine Hogan. Dr. Bruchik, over to you in the studio. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Mila Bruchik, and I'm joined with Dr. Greg Wolf. Um, and today, we're going to re be reviewing something that's increasingly important. Um, it's actually an overview paper on ocular syphilis. So Greg, I really want to hear from you. I mean, why is this topic important to ODs right now? The first thing I really like to say is I love these major review articles. Uh, they're one of those articles that you want to print out and put in your own personal library uh, to really reference back from time to time because it covers everything, soup to nuts, on whatever, whatever topic they're doing a major review on. But syphilis is just so vitally important to our daily practice. Of course, we all learned in school, if you don't know what the answer is for the differential, you always list syphilis because it can manifest in the eye in just a variety of ways. Uh, but really, we need to be more concerned about it because syphilis is on the rise. And there's a varying reasons for that. And although ocular syphilis, a subset of syphilis in general, is classified as rare, you know, is it really rare when it's in your chair? And the, the prevalence of ocular syphilis, this, the papers vary widely from a half a percent to almost over 56% of those with syphilis have some sort of ocular manifestation of the disease. So that that's is a that, that's a massive range, Greg. That's an absolute massive range. So it is one of these conditions. Um, so, so help us understand and break down a little bit like the key findings in the actual article um, that can help us really like on a day-to-day -day basis in clinical practice, break it down for us. What's really important in this article? Sure. Um, just address that wide range. That wide range just depends on what population you're looking at, depending on what your geographic region is. So ocular syphilis is, is enough on the rise that the CDC has actually issued alert on ocular syphilis for all eye care professionals to be aware of. Um, but why is that increasing? And part of that increase is due to increase in risky sexual behavior. Uh, the advent of PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, has been hugely, hugely monumental in the decrease in additional HIV infections. However, it has increased the use of condomless use sex. Syphilis is highly, highly transmittable. So therefore, we have increase in risky behavior. We can increase our chances of spreading spreading syphilis. And once, why is it so transmissible? Because of its shape and the way that it can uh, burrow through really any blood barrier in your body. And we have two of those in the eye, the blood choroidal barrier and the blood ciliary body barrier. Um, I think, Greg, to, to be very blunt, I think that's one of the most concerning things is that it, it can cross that barrier. And that that is just a grave concern of mine when it comes to clinical consequences and what it can actually do and cause to the eye. Oh, sure. I'll give you a little clinical anecdote. I mean, think of a corkscrew, how well that corkscrew, corkscrew shape can pass through a corkscrew, much more easier than opening up a wine bottle with the heel of your shoe, which allegedly may or may not have happened in Academy Banquet. We won't. 
but you know that trend that goes through the cork very very easily so you know we're marinating in syphilis if it's in our cerebral spinal fluid uh, so really ocular syphilis can present in a variety of ways um, but the cdc defines it as any ocular symptom in the context of any stage of the syphilis disease remember there are we learned in school there are three stages or primary secondary late, late, early latent, late latent, and tertiary. And we have the final stage of neurosyphilis. And that stage of neurosyphilis can happen at any stage of the disease. Now, this is important because any sign of ocular syphilis should be treated as neurosyphilis. So there is where we have to work with our colleagues in infectious disease uh, to adequately treat those patients who present with the most common finding of uveitis. Unbelievable. So, so um, as we continue through this, is there any messages from this paper in particular that you feel are important for patients to know as well too? Because I know, again, a lot of these things are very clinical to us, but is there anything that you feel like this is important to share with, with the patients that are in our chair? Sure. The importance of sharing this information with our patients is perhaps in our clinical communication and our clinical delivery. When that patient shows up with a condition that could be suggestive of syphilis, that we start off this conversation in a, in a very respectful and empathetic manner, because we need our patients really at this point to be honest with us about their sexual behavior. And if they're not honest with us, they can, they can misinterpret some of our messaging. Greg, describe to us um, really what entails or, or what's involved or, or what's entailed with lab testing here with, uh, with when you suspect ocular syphilis? Sure. Well, the paper really points out very, very clearly that any diagnosis of uveitis, be it anterior, posterior, or panuveitis, uh, really needs to be worked up for syphilis. And that workup, we may have learned in school, starts with a non-trepidemal test and then goes to a confirmatory treponemal-specific test. And that's a typical algorithm with the non-treponemal test is more of a screening test. And then if the screening test is flagged, then it goes to look for the specific antibodies against uh, T. pallidum. However, that treatment algorithm now has been reversed in most cases. And that's because of the prevalence of ocular syphilis that sometimes in the early stages or even the late stages of the disease, the screening test or the RPR as we typically order can be falsely negative. And that's a huge miss. We don't want to assume that that false negative is a true negative. So therefore it's been because the cost of that confirmatory lab test is much more reduced now, it's cost effective for the labs to reverse the order. However, this is where you need to be in, con in connection with your local lab provider because they might not be aware of the switch in, in the treatment or excuse me, in the laboratory testing uh, algorithm. Uh, so I've had to actually call the few labs to say, hey, you know, even though that RPR was negative, I still want you to do that confirmatory FTA ABS test because my suspicions are quite high. That's great, Greg, and I love I love the clinical aspects that you threw in it. Well, this this is what really makes this review article uh, valuable here. Now, from your perspective, do you see anything on the horizon that may develop from this research, or anything in the future that may develop from this research? Two things they pointed out in the paper is our ability to maybe make that correlation with syphilis in our office with the technology that we have now. 
that wasn't available maybe even 10 years ago, the, or the wide availability of this technology. And that's fundus autofluorescence and spectral domain OCT. Uh, they can't confirm the presence of syphilis, but they can highly suggest that maybe the ocular conditions that we're seeing uh, is of importance. For instance, the fundus autofluorescence will hyperfluoresce in any inflammatory state of disease. And our SDOCT, you know, we're down to the micron of microns. So now we can see really in what layer of the retina or the choroid, you know, is the inflammation in. And there's certain conditions um, that can really specifically show very distinct characteristics of breaks in the external limiting membrane that correspond to loss of that ellipsoid zone, that correspond with these nodular hyperreflective um, irregular appearance of the retinal pigmented epithelium. And so that kind of clues, clues you in on the possibility of that really syphilis-specific uh, outer retinal uh, diagnosis. It is unbelievable how the technologies are giving us the ability to increase suspicion with our certain conditions and at some points even lead us down a different path because again autofluorescence you can't do that you can't you can't do that at a slit lamp or with a BIO you can't do OCT at a slit lamp or with a BIO this is allowing us the ability to look at the eyes in ways that we've never seen before and I think it's really interesting that you've actually leveraged that technology to help us understand this condition and how to identify it as well too Greg um, this is this is excellent I could I could sit here with you Greg and talk about this for another another hour but I think you've given us a lot of great pearls on this I want to thank you and appreciate you for being here today Greg I really appreciate it, Mila. I, I just want to close close with one important thing that, you know, although syphilis is the great masquerader, it might not be syphilis. There can be other things. And this is where I have to put my little public health hat on because I love public health and ask our questions or ask our patients questions about travel, travel epidemiology. You know, have you traveled to a part of the world where things like chikungunya might be more prevalent? Things that we don't necessarily think about on Main Street USA. Yep, yep, such, such a good point, especially now as we're starting to get traveling again as well, too. I mean, it was rare to see travelers here for the last year and a half, but we're starting to see people get out there. Uh, again, Greg, thank you for your time and really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. And a special thanks to CooperVision for their educational grant to make it all happen.